American Cinematographer Podcast takes you behind the scenes with the people behind the camera, from the classics to the cutting edge. Thanks for listening. I'm Ian Marks, and in this episode, M. David Mullen, ASC, and associate members Rob Hummel and Jay Holbin join us from the historic ASC Clubhouse in Hollywood to talk about the process of writing and editing the American Cinematographer Manual. Long considered to be the first and last word on the craft of cinematography, the manual is now in its 11th edition. It's unlike any other textbook. I mean, you think the legacy of this thing? It's an honor, so you you work really hard to make sure it's as it's the best of the best. But first, the November 2022 issue of American Cinematographer Magazine is out now, with a cover featuring the HBO Max series, House of the Dragon, shot by ASC member Fabian Wagner and a trio of alternating cinematographers with unit photography by Ollie Upton, courtesy of HBO. You can read all about their work on the Game of Thrones prequel in this month's feature story. Also in this issue, James Friend, ASC, BSC, and director Edward Berger immerse viewers in the muddy trenches of World War I for the latest adaptation of Eric Maria Remarque's 1929 novel, All Quiet on the Western Front. Cinematographer Stephen H. Burham, ASC, is profiled on the occasion of his Lifetime Achievement Award from Camera Image for a distinctive career that includes The Outsiders, Rumblefish, Hoffa, and the first Mission Impossible movie. Cinematographer Polly Morgan, ASC, BSC, discusses her two latest films, Where the Crawdads Sing and The Woman King. And a long gestating indie film by writer-director Patrick Reed Johnson is partly inspired by The Society and its flagship magazine in 52577. Also, keep an eye out for a report from the ASC's Motion Imaging Technology Council in this month's Shotcraft, and a look at the filming of India's international hit RRR with cinematographer Senthil Kumar. In Clubhouse news, cinematographer Mike Giulakis is welcomed as a new member. His credits include It Follows, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, and Us. Society members Gary Baum and Cheko Varese were among the winners announced during the 74th Primetime Creative Arts Emmy Awards. In total, 11 society members were nominated. And the 37th annual ASC Outstanding Achievement Awards Gala will take place on March 5th, 2023. See the magazine for submission deadlines and additional details. This episode of the American Cinematographer Podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass. Designed for advanced students seeking to build their skill set, this five-day seminar is taught in Los Angeles by top directors of photography. Sessions include live demonstrations of lighting and camera techniques and instruction in current workflow practices. Specialized instruction may cover such subjects as commercial product lighting, the use of drones, and virtual production methods. In-person instruction takes place at the ASC Clubhouse in Hollywood and nearby facilities with all necessary equipment provided. Enrollment in each ASC Masterclass session is limited to 30 students. Upcoming sessions in 2023 will take place January 23rd through the 27th and May 22nd through the 26th. Complete details and registration can be found at theasc.com. 
And now, it's time for the interview. Welcome to the American Cinematographer Magazine podcast. My name is Jay Holbin. I'm an associate member of the ASC. And it's my honor to be here today with Mr. David Mullen, ASC, and Mr. Rob Hummel to discuss the American Cinematographer Manual 11th edition. Thank you, gentlemen, uh, for being here. It's really an honor. Great to be here. Great to be here. Great. Okay, then we're done. Fantastic. <laughs> we want to talk about this. Uh, obviously, there's a, an, an incredible legacy to this book. Um, dating back to the origins of the ASC and, and the annual that was published every year uh, before, I believe, around 63, 65 was the first actual manual. Actually, uh, uh, Jackson Rose published versions in the 1940s uh, that were circulated around and published by the ASC, uh, though they weren't numbered as uh, editions back then. And he literally did the calculations with a hand calculator, you know, like with a handle, you know, punching in the numbers to calculate the depth of field things. Steve Burham is astounding on his knowledge. And I've learned it all from Steve uh, uh, about that kind of history. Then I got to about the 1950s when the ASC decided to take it on formally and publish it. That, that's when the, the first edition, when they started counting them from there. Got it. So Is that too much information? <laughs> <laughs> is there anybody listening to this who can say that we have too much information? Coming out? I don't think so. Um, and you're an old hand at this. You actually have edited another edition. Yeah, the eighth edition. Yeah. Uh, you'd think I would have been smart enough to say no when they asked me to do this. Uh, people don't understand. It's an honor to edit this manual, but it's a lot of work. And uh, you understand why most, and David and I appreciate, why previous editions had often been edited by retired cinematographers. You know, uh, or, or Rod, Dr. Rod Ryan at the time. He was retired from Eastman Kodak when he edited it. You know, uh, a legend in the cinematography circles from Kodak. You know, when I first did it, I was head of animation technology for the DreamWorks studio. I had a day job. So, and and also uh, uh, what I started was a wave on the eighth edition was um, what I'd learned through my years of dealing with cinematographers. They said, never throw away your older editions of the manual because they always throw something out that doesn't show up in the next edition. So you need to refer back to your previous edition. But, that, but it was an era too where it was film, right? Things didn't change that often. So a book that was, eight years old would still have relevant information in it. Um, so what I, my, on the eighth edition, and I'm saying this, giving you such a long answer, but just to explain something that I started in, which was, you know what, in this edition, we're going to bring everything back that disappeared. And so that's why suddenly the eighth edition became big enough to stop a bullet. And I mean a sizable bullet because we basically put everything in it, but it was probably the last full-fledged filmic edition. And it took four years, four years. I, every spare moment I was working on that book other than my day job. I mean, uh, my, my wife, my late wife referred to her as a ASC widow at, at, at the time. <laughs> yes, my wife has referred to herself as a lens widow. <laughs> so I, I completely understand. What, what was the stroke of insanity, David, to make you want to take this project on? Well, I was involved in the edition before, uh, actually two editions before. I was on the proofreading team uh, that Stephen Burham's uh, edition, which was the ninth, I guess. Right. And uh, I sat there a few days proofreading the book and we were having meetings about it. And Steve Burham at this table pointed at Michael Goy and said, Michael, you're going to edit the 10th edition and David, you're going to edit the 11th edition. Uh, at the time I had a year, it was so far away that I didn't, I was like, oh, that's fine. You know, it's like, you know, it'll be years before you get around to me. But so I was there for the, that edition and I was involved in proofreading a little bit uh, on the next one, not as much. 
Um, but at some point, once the uh, Michael Goy's version came out, I knew I had to start working on my version. I let a little time pass. I thought, well, it's out. It should get some reading, you know, circulation before I really tackle it. Not realizing how long it would take to actually work on the book because uh, I didn't expect it to take the number of years it took. And truth is, it's only because COVID happened and I had a whole year off from work to just concentrate on this book. And I brought Rob Hummel in to split up the work with that this all became doable. So uh, yeah, that's how I got involved. I just, I got a finger pointed at me and and uh, I said, sure. Uh, yes, I think uh, Dave Stump was the first one who mentioned the voluntold uh, term to me. And, and that happens a lot around the ASC. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, can... I'm in the ASC tech committee and often, and anyone proposes anything, uh, Curtis Clark would just say, that's a great idea. Why don't you head a committee and uh, tackle that problem? So so how do you tackle this problem? I mean, this is this is a massive undertaking. How did you start well, I had worked on a revision of a cinematography textbook like 10 years earlier. My um, favorite textbook, actually. Uh, with Chris Malkiewicz, who was my professor at CalArts. So I had tackled organizing a, a rewrite of a textbook before. And it's a fascinating problem because you try to think linearly, you know, like maybe I'll start with cameras and go to lenses and then go to post. But as soon as you start to do that, everything folds back on itself. Like, well, I can't really talk about cameras unless I talk about formats. But if I talk about formats, suddenly I'm into post-production. And it gets very hard to be linear in any kind of way. But I wanted to restructure the book to somewhat of a, a flow that seemed to make sense to me from pre-production and conceptual issues through production and then post-production as best as I could. Uh, the main thing was obviously reading the whole previous manual and, and figuring out what needed updating. The previous manual had started to tackle the transition from film to digital, but it was still more film than digital. Uh, this was in the early days of HD, you know, 2005, seven, when people were starting to transition, there was somewhat of a film digital war even going on. But by the time I tackled the manual, digital clearly become a dominant player in production, and there was no way around tackling digital. And then, of course, the problem immediately becomes that digital technology changes so rapidly compared to film. If I was dealing with a film process, I could write an article, and three or four years later, when I get around to printing it, it's more or less still accurate. But if I write an article on some post-process, I have to check it constantly to make sure it's, it's up to date by the time it goes to press. So it's very hard to do a book on digital technology. And part of my decision to deal with that was to go back around towards concepts. You know, it's if you give people the basis for understanding something, the actual details of the technology changing don't matter as much if they get the core um, ideas down. So I was determined that the chapters sort of address uh, basic concepts in each category that were be universal and be transposable even if the particular tool disappears. Yeah, it was to provide that fundamental foundational knowledge I think we both had in mind to provide to people so that they were girded so that as they would move forward, because the, 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 the purpose of the manual is if you're going to carry it with you on a movie set is if somebody starts talking about something, when you go back to your hotel room that night, you can go look in the manual and become very smart on the subject, right? But it's, uh, it, it's that process of ensuring that they're, they're knowledgeable enough that as technologies change, there's a foundational there that you can quickly Google things and become very expert because you've got the, this chapter in the manual that got you started, and then you can find out what the latest information. The other thing was, too, David, too, I like that we, 
We, uh, the man used to always, I tried to do this on the eighth edition and completely failed. I was overruled by the board and stuff of not listing specifications for digital cameras and digital devices, because who looks in a book for the latest specifications anymore? So in the current manual, we've got QR codes that you scan that'll take you to the website of, of these different manufacturers. And you can look up for yourself because we just acknowledge that you're not going to be looking in a, in a book for the latest reference and specifications for things. Yeah, we, we to some degree, I had to give the book a diet because the last edition was literally the biggest and heaviest version ever to come out. Partly, there had been an incision in the printing process to switch page size to a more standard page format um, that would make it cheaper to print. But the book became larger with bigger margins and just a bigger book overall. And then when I asked uh, so this book that got cheaper to print, uh, is, is, are we, is it cost saving us money? And goes, well, it's costing us more to ship. So it just seemed like, uh, if it's going to cost you more to ship, then why don't we just go back to the smaller page size and make it a little more of a pocket size, not, I wouldn't say pocket size, but a little more of a lighter, smaller book. But I also did have to find a way to shave some pages out of it. And I did that by looking at all the charts and, and anything that I felt was, um, either, too changeable to put into a printed book or was no longer relevant in today's um, working environment. I think the, the book has always been a bit schizophrenic in that it's both a reference book and a textbook. And the goals of, of a reference book are very different from a textbook. You know, a reference book is to look up stuff and a textbook is to learn stuff. Uh, I tried to shift it a little more to being a textbook because, again, that's giving people more of a universal sort of grounding on these ideas and reference material that would be more easily found now on a website. I didn't feel the need to reprint it so much. And that saved me some pages. I want to say one thing about that though, because I, I had to, I had to defend our decision with a couple very renowned cinematographers uh, that felt we were making a big decision to move things like all of the depth of field tables out of the book, which uh, the reason we did that is, is because when you had depth of field tables, you had, the imaging area size of super 16, 35 millimeter, and 65 millimeter. That was it. Basically, that was your formats. Well, there are digital cameras out there. You've got a dozen or so different uh, image area sizes, be it an Alexa, a RED. They're all slightly different. And that angle of view changes and affects your depth of focus depending on the size of the image sensor that you're talking about. And we realize everybody uses apps on their phone now anyway. So it just, it would be, it'd be untenable to just narrow the choice. So Depth of field table's gone, basically saying, you use your app of choice or you can you can you enter your own custom image size if you want, as well as choosing from a list of current cameras. Yeah, the, the 35 depth of field charts were all based around the projected 185 standard four per print image area, which is truthfully hardly anyone's shooting anymore in digital cameras. And then on top of that, it's all based on a circle confusion figure, which is debatable these days. I actually went to the person who did these depth of field charts last time to talk about updating them. And the first thing he hit me with is, what are you going to use for circle confusion? Uh, because he didn't actually believe in the, the uh, standard that had been used for decades. So it just seemed at that point, uh, there was no reason to, uh, to redo the charts and try to update them and then reprint them. Plus they take up like 125 pages of the book. So Which my chapter, of course, consumed completely. <laughs> well, of course, of course. But I'd, I'd say we... We put about one third of the book is completely new information, new chapters, new ideas, new uh, stuff. And then one third is heavily revised from previous generations. 
And then probably one-third is mildly revised. The, some things haven't changed that radically. Um, so, but there's definitely a whole third of the book, which is this brand new stuff that's never been printed before. I call out the chapter on resolution that Dan Rosen wrote. Uh, it's never been in the manual before. It's a, it's a subject that is discussed among cinematographers and filmmakers in general, and often they don't know what the heck they're talking about. And, and this, this chapter, you don't need to be an engineer to understand it. Dan's done a great job of articulating it and, and explaining it very well. Actually resolving details as opposed to just counting photosites. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. One thing, I've said this a thousand times to my friends here at the clubhouse. When I worked at Technicolor and Kodak would come out with a new film stock, a Kodak would, well, it's got this, uh, the, the T-gain pixels, and it's, uh, it's a 400-speed stock, and is this done? And, and Owen Roy is going to say, just give me a roll, and I'll shoot a test. Yeah. You know, And then you go, oh, it's not a 320. It's actually a 200-speed stock. And I, and I, and, but in the world of digital, somebody comes out and says, I've got a 4K, 8K camera, and so many cinematographers go, really? Cool. And it's got it's 18 like, stops of dynamic range. <laughs> yeah. really? and, and people take it at face value. It's like, what are you talking about? Go out, you need to go out and shoot a test. Well, there's, there's been this whole uh, disassociation from photosite count to resolution. Yeah. Everybody calls, you know, it's a 8096 sensor, so they call it an 8K camera. But is it really resolving the detail? Bingo, yeah, bingo, bingo, yes. It's a whole different world. And on the defense of digital, sometimes that's used to beat up digital compared to film because they would say, well, film is 4K. And then you go back to, well, what, what does that mean? It means you scanned red, green, and blue at 4K, but that doesn't mean that they're each resolving 4K worth of detail. So even with film, it's not an accurate way to describe resolution. Uh, but Plus, are you numbers, talking about negative? Are you talking about interpositive? Are you talking about a print? And then projection. I mean, the whole, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's, it's a very complicated subject that's been way too simplified for marketing purposes. And uh, we felt the need to have a chapter to really talk about what resolution actually means so it's a great great new addition to the book so there was um i'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this but there was kind of an experiment in the manual to do a digital cinematography book uh, a few years ago so we had the digital cinematography manual or the video manual i guess yeah, we, we didn't it. have a digit we had earlier a video manual the video manual yeah. and there was talk about revising that too but that was that talk happened right when hd and 24p and and film was switching over to digital, and suddenly the world of video and the world of film merged, and the notion of a separate video manual suddenly didn't seem to make sense anymore. Um, but they were, there was discussion around the early 2000s, mid-2000s, about revising the video manual. Was any of that useful in putting this together? It's all obsolete at this point. I didn't look at it. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I looked at the video manual because uh, I was in discussion to possibly work on revising it. Um, but... Uh, it just didn't seem uh, to, to center it more on filmmaking, which is what the ASC does, um, rather than video. It's tricky because the video, the video manual was geared partly towards people who do ENG and, and things that not necessarily what ASC members work on. And I wanted the information to be geared towards filmmaking, commercial, narrative kind of style filmmaking. And so that really meant talking about video in terms of production for narrative and that was just that time when uh production the industry was switching over so a separate book didn't make any sense anymore yeah, it's changed now with digital cinematography you're using the same tools whether you're shooting eng yeah. or tv yeah. news or a tv show or etc just what what different the, the changes are frame rates uh, essentially what yeah end up being. or lens mouse yeah or lens bounce the 
10th edition had a, a chapter that I wrote about low-cost uh, HD uh, options for filmmakers. So, Because this was in the age of uh, when DV was becoming HD and, and the Dogma 95 had turned into, uh, you know, people going to image transfer from these companies, how to transfer their video to film and release them in theaters. And so I looked into all the low-cost options for shooting uh, digital, um, for shooting features. But even that world has completely changed because the, the high-end tools are now available to low-budget filmmakers. People shoot very small films on Alexas and RED cameras these days. And the, the more prosumer-type equipment has gotten so good that the quality on that is, is very similar and the features are very similar and the post systems are all similar. So it, there isn't really a separate world anymore for that, um, so to speak. There are, you know, I guess you could still write an article about some, if you base it merely on price and say, I'm only going to discuss cameras that cost less than $10,000. Let's say you could write a chapter on that. But the trouble when you, you concentrate too much on just consumer and prosumer equipment is that stuff comes out every year. So to put it in a book again, a book that comes out every five years, this doesn't make sense. So that that's segues into the question, why a physical book in this day and age, and why not an app or an extended website? Well, again, that's why I tried to think of it more of as a, as a textbook with kind of where you sit and actually read it. And I do find that um, printed material in, in long form is easier to read in, in books, although I do read a lot of e-books too. But uh, reading long articles on an internet site is much harder to some degree. And I think a lot of the way we've written these articles, they're meant to be read straight through. They're not, uh, they're not like a quick web page kind of a description of something. So I still think there's values in, in books as long as it's, it's something that a book does better than a web page or, or an <coughs> app. It just, it just depends on the information. But I don't think you could make an app version of this book. You could make an app version of maybe one or two chapters in this book, uh, maybe but you'd have to even rethink that. Where, where's that dividing line for you between what's capable in an app and what's capable in text? Well, printed text. When just reading on a cell phone screen and, and just consuming, a, a, there's a lot of information here and having to look at the pictures and pinching and, and unsqueezing to zoom in enough. I, I think you just find from a practical statement, I mean, as I understand it, there eventually will be an online version of this edition as well, perhaps, but... Uh, I think uh, the, the way this book and the quality of printing in this, because there are pictures in here for evaluated purposes. In fact, we went round and round to make sure that they were accurately representing things like in David's Day for Night article or, or uh, uh, where we're, we're talking about the, the how Super 35 looks versus anamorphic. Because we, again, we still do talk about film subjects, we, but we, we uh, also talk about how they're captured digitally as well. And I think it's important to see the clarity of those images to get the point across. That's yeah. all my thinking. And then also a book you don't have to worry about internet bandwidth in your hotel room. Is your, uh... <laughs> yeah, I, I think the chapters are written in a long enough form that they're, they're geared towards a book type uh, publication. Although I suppose one could read them individually as long articles on a website, which is possible. But I, with these newer chapters uh, that were written, I did try to ask the authors to speak from their own personal experience. So especially uh, more filmmaking-oriented chapters like the one on Super 16 that uh, uh, Roberto Schaefer wrote. I, you know, he shot a lot of Super 16, and I wanted him to write that chapter from his own personal experience so that you were getting his knowledge and skill from using the format and then, and then uh, working with it 
And so I wanted the chapters to have a, somewhat of the personality of the writer and the experience to come through, not to be too dry when they were about production-oriented uh, materials. So, um, you know, the uh, shooting in cold weather that uh, James Niehaus wrote for me on Arctic and tropical photography is from a very practical standpoint on what it's like to work outside and stuff and based on his own experience. And that was sort of my goal is to get some of the... Uh, the human? Per, human, yeah. I think that's what I've always admired about other textbooks. Um, I did... There's a textbook written in England years ago called uh, Practical Motion Picture Photography by, I think, Russell Campbell. And uh, what I liked about it is it was a textbook, but every chapter he would have a quote by a working British cinematographer talking about their practical onset experience over the issue, the technical issue being talked about, like using 85 gel on windows and why and color temperature. And then a guy would say, well, on this British movie, I had this experience with gelling windows and why I did this or lit this. And I found that fascinating to get something of the working experience of the cinematographer intermixed with very dry technical descriptions of, of how things work. And I wanted a little of that flavor in the new chapters in this book. It makes sense. It, it makes it for more interesting and less dry or, or less technical, right? You, you get that practical kind of aspect. Of well, it. so I think that the reason you people get the book is that it's written by ASC members so and ASC associates. So you're getting this life experience that these people have being written down and put into a book. And so I wanted to make sure that there was the personality of these writers came through. So I have to confess a little bit. Um, I gave you a hard time about a lens list in the manual. Well, there was one in the previous edition. There was, yeah. And, and I felt um, it, that was something that needed to go online it, it, because it, there are so many now and it changes so rapidly. And how do you choose what goes in the manual or not? Uh, and I still stick behind that. But I also really went into the previous issues to look at the lens lists to help us with the lens book to determine when certain things had been released or not. So you were absolutely right that there's a historical record to it. Yeah, you gave me all this, uh, you know. Why I gave you a hard push, time. Yeah, yeah, why would you push this in a book? And then you print it, you've made your own book. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, that was part of it too. You know, we were working on this and um, didn't want to uh, to. But that conflict. issue does come up. I get this a lot is that some of this information changes, will change no matter what. And so what's the point of a book if the information is going to eventually be obsolete? But being a somewhat of a film historian myself, I find the written record is important. That that even if this is a snapshot of film production in the period of, you know, 2019 through 2023 or whatever, however this long this information is relevant, it's still valuable. People 30 years from now who want to know how movies were made in this period will read this book and, and see these are the tools they had, this is the techniques they chose, this is the sort of attitudes they had towards technology. So I, I still think it's always valuable to put things into a book. You just have to gauge the transient nature of the information. If it's information that's literally of, of only accurate for a year, it's better in a periodical or a web page than it is in a printed book. But if it's valuable for several years, I think it, it is uh, good to have it printed and, and be in the public record. I agree. And, I, and I'm sorry for giving you a hard time. But it's just funny because I, when I started this book, the first thing is I went to you and you said, oh, I don't want to do this lens list, redo this lens. I went to the guy who did the depth of field charts because oh, I don't want to redo these. I was suddenly like, well, how am I going to redo these chapters when the people actually put all the effort in the first time don't want to do it again? Uh, and so I had to start rethinking some of these things and, and listening to why the reasons why it maybe is a good idea not to, to reprint it. Also, 
once I saw your book, there's no way I could give my book a diet and then stick your book, which is twice as big as my book, into that book. So I think it's know, five times as big. Yeah. So it's just, <laughs> you know, once you thoroughly explore a subject like you did in, in your lens book. Which is spectacular, by It the needs way. its own book, basically. It doesn't, it doesn't work as a chapter in a, in a book. Um, otherwise, it just becomes a kind of skirting of, of the topic rather than being an in-depth. That was somewhat of my, my frustration with the manual over the years is that it tries to be too many things and, and doesn't really achieve any in-depth, which is why we thought we need an entire book on, on lenses. Uh, I, I would love to see the AC manual be an entire book on cameras, an entire book on lenses, an entire book on lighting, and be a collection. That's a great idea. You should write that. <laughs> well, yeah, I should shut up at this point, really. Um, but to be the definitive resource, because uh, I, I, I really love what you books, did though, here. Jay, uh, you know, that's, those are different books. This is supposed to be something you've taken with you. You don't want to be taking a library with you. Now, granted, if it's digital, I guess you, you can take it in your phone with you, but it's... Uh, this is meant to be that general reference to know that uh, somebody's just started talking about a subject you kind of know about. I wonder if it's in my in my ASC manual that I have up in my hotel room. You go look at it. Oh, great. Here's an article by uh, Dave Stump here about, because they want me to test these digital cameras. And he's totally laid a whole testing metho methodology here. And I left my copy of Dave's book at home. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, or you got a job doing underwater. Suddenly you've never done underwater. So... I'm going to go to the AC manual and say, okay, what does it say? What do I need to know? What, how do I approach this? Yeah, yeah totally. Again, the, get you the, started. the principles are there enough to get you, you know, to go deep, dive deeper and somewhere else, but you can get the principles in aerial photography, underwater photography. Um, one of the things I really wanted to update was uh, we had a chapter on, um, again, shooting Arctic tropical infrared that was written by Dr. Ryan and never updated. So, even in the, the previous edition, you get to the description on infrared and it talks about black and white reversal films and shooting the jungle on 16 black and white reversal. And I'm like, well, this is way out of date. So uh, I had uh, Bill Bennett uh, write an article on infrared photography because I knew he was an expert in that. He'd done it in commercials as still photography. And as like I said, I had James Niehaus do the tropical and the... Uh, and I wanted them to... They could talk both about film and digital, but from current production standpoint... Infrared has almost entirely gone digital, whereas the Arctic and tropical photography chapters uh, work for either digital or film. They, they cover both topics pretty well. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's where the manual is great, is new concepts uh, that you haven't encountered before, and you're going to get the foundation here and then go. And, and written by leaders in there, like the aerial chapter, written by David Knoll. Oh, my God. I'm Who's a legend. I mean, <laughs> the... The, the 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 films that he's worked on and in, I was doing dailies for David back when I was at Technicolor and stuff when he did on worked on a TV show called Call the Glory and he's doing aerial shots of the SR seventy one for this TV show from a Learjet where the Learjet's at the top of its envelope and the SR is like at the bottom of its is anyway and then he's he he worked on Top Gun Maverick I mean so you got somebody who has an arc of a career and is totally at the top of his game, writing the chapter on aerial cinematography. So, you know, you're going to go back and you're getting advice from the, uh, the, the pros from Dover, you know, and, and their field. So part of the struggle of putting a book together like this is, is hurting the kittens, right? <laughs> you, you've got to... Sometimes you've got to hurt them, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true. Those electric prods we got were amazingly helpful. No, it's, that's, that's why the book took as long as it did. Um, 
because I could only work on it in between bouts of, of my job and when I had free time to work on it. So there'd be a couple of weeks or months would go by and then I'm tackle the book again, but then I'd contact the author and they're on a job and they respond to me two or three months later after they get a break. And then I'd respond to their response and two or three months would go by. And it just, everything got dragged way out because we're all working while we're trying to write these chapters. So and, and then when we thought we were done, we realized, oh crap, we better go through this and make sure that none of these have gone stale because some of them were like 14 months old. And, and so we did. And a lot of it, we re- freshened up the chapters some more again. Yeah. And so it was, it was like this constant, I think we did that like twice, of, of just realizing, okay, we got to make, because candidly, the last edition of the manual, I wrote my article four years on film formats, four years before it was published. I mean, actually, I'd written it twice. That was my second time around. And then I remember I, I, I told the ASC, you know, by the way, let me know when you guys are getting ready to publish because things have changed and I should update enough. They published it and it was, it was embarrassing because it was uh, it was out of date when it, when it, when it was printed. well you get punished almost for being diligent and and yeah. being ahead of the curve i wrote my article for the previous edition on low cost digital and i wrote we wrote it three times because i i was really diligent i wrote it and i i turned it in and then a year goes by and i guess i better rewrite that and i i rewrote it and another year went by and i guess i better rewrite it again so at some point i was like uh you know, I felt like I was being being punished for actually working on it <laughs> and trying it. to maintain it. Yeah. So, but we did have to send all the articles back to the authors to have them re-review it. And of course, again, they're working, and some of them come back months later with their notes. So it just it just uh, took a long time. What helped was we had quite a cadre of people proofreading the articles with us that weren't the actual authors of the chapters, but Mark Mark Weingart, for example, one of many. But he was he was a yeoman as far as the number of chapters he took on and the number of notes he would make that were like, oh my gosh, he's totally right. We, this should address this or something like that. Uh, again, it's, it's the the layers that go into putting this manual together. It's unlike any other textbook like that, really. It's not a single person sitting down, I'm going to write a book on cinematography. It's, it's, it's so many people involved with this. And and it's, and I'm, David and I haven't said it, but one thing about being asked to edit this manual, it's an incredible honor. I mean, you think the legacy of this thing that our names are on this book that uh, that that has such a legacy behind it that uh, going back to Charles Clark and things like that it's just a, it's an honor so you you work really hard to make sure it's as it's the best of the best as it can be it, it's also the reference worldwide so you have to work incredibly hard to make sure that it's right uh, because it will be it, it's written in stone now once it's in there so if there's an error if there's something that's wrong in there that'll be referenced for a decade. Hopefully the errors are just typos and not actual. <laughs> I think when this time around, not to tell them. tales out of school, but we made really, really, really clear that all of the facts were correct and 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 double checked and triple checked, which is a painful process that I, I can attest yeah, to. But we, there had been prior experience where some mistakes had gotten through the, uh, and and they had to send out errata with books, and I don't know of any errata going out with this book. Do you? No. Yeah. No, I haven't. Uh, <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's been out there now since March. That was always the terror for me with the, with the lens book was we would put it out there and I would get that call. Hey, 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 no, this isn't right. And it, it, I had nightmares for years. Did you get any that. calls like that? No, not well, yet. One good thing about lenses, I love <laughs> Ian Neal. I think it's in th- this version of his chapter on lenses too. Is that he makes a great point about lenses because Ian, come on, he eats, sleeps and bleeds lenses. As he goes, 
uh, at least I know it was in the eighth edition, maybe it's in this edition. He started out with, you know, no matter what you're shooting on film, whether you're shooting on digital or shooting on some imaging format that hasn't been invented yet, you're going to need a lens. <laughs> and, and, the, and, the, and the tools and theories of optics, the physics of it, they're, they're pretty fixed. That was part of the benefit is, you know, everybody's asked, how, you, how do you keep up with everything? And well, no, 90% of this is germane for the next hundred years. Yeah, exactly. It has been for a hundred years. It, it's not going to change. Cheater. But you happen, to, <laughs> you happen to start your book just when there was an explosion of lenses. I mean, once now the digital has sort of become the norm, people are using lenses to create looks they used to use film stocks for. So everyone's putting out variations of lenses and twists on lenses and old lenses and and it's just insane just in the last seven years, let's say, you know, how many new types of lenses have come out. Uh, there's more choices now than ever. So how did you handle the lens section in the manual? Well, we don't have it now. <laughs> uh, the, uh, no, no the lens list we got rid of. The, yeah, the lens, the lens yeah. chapter is still Ian Neal's. It's a, it's a revision of his previous chapter. Because it's talking about basic concepts. Yeah, it's updated to include some of the new trends in anamorphic uh, lenses, different squeeze ratios, and, and some other things new developments have happened uh, and the trend towards using detuned lenses and other things for, for looks and digital. So it, it, it has been updated, but bulk of it is, is classic lens uh, history and lens physics and things that, that haven't changed. And Ian is the extraordinary source. I mean, he's, he's amazing. And, and going through and trying, try adapting the graphics he would send for his chapter so that they could actually be in a form that could be published. It was, <laughs> I think that's part of the role I played was me, Photoshopping my life away and 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 uh, of fixing and making sure that things were accurately going to be reproduced and reprodu uh, reproduced properly for the manual line, like Evans Wetmore's formulas. Uh, he, he he uses some uh, formula device because Word and and other uh, uh, ch uh, programs we would use don't do all the formula stuff, so. We ended up, I had had to go through his chapter and do screen captures of every single formula and create, you know, uh, PNG files to be put into the manual and also to make sure that they were of high enough resolution so they get reproduced. That's the kind of nonsense I got saddled with doing, but ha happily. But there's a lot of things about, as you know, doing a graphic heavy book, there's, there's some of the technology involved is just tricky. Like we had most of the articles are written in Word formats, Word documents. But when they were text, it was then stuck into a, a chart of some sort. Um, what I didn't realize is some of them would have to be retyped, and certain and those those graphic programs don't have uh, spell checks in them. So what would happen is a word that I knew was correctly spelled in Word now in the chart had might have a typo in it, and so we had to very carefully proofread the. Uh, and some cells would shift around. Yeah. You're like, ah, no, wrong column. Right. You know? We, you know, <laughs> that's the level of, I mean, it's like, you can't like casually look at these things and assume that you literally have to go through yeah. painstakingly. We're, you know, we're not graphics people, we're writers. So that's what we work in. I do like the fact that, you know, it's funny. It's the first time it's ever really been done is that uh, we, we uh, David and I didn't like the fact that every chapter starts on a right facing page. So if a chapter finishes on a right facing page, there's a left facing page that's blank. I've been that way. But what do we have in the archive of the ASC? photographs so, you know, why don't we put photographs in here of people on set just to at least make it a, a visually interesting book for the first the first time we've ever done that it was kind of fun it, that's a really great touch it's very very cool to, to see that it's, it's a little bit like the awards uh, book kind of integrated with the yeah manual. and it's fun to look at those pictures and we 
made sure we were uh, diverse enough uh, too that we had some current pictures to include women cinematographers and uh, people of color and stuff like that. So that if you make a mistake, if you just go all archival, it's a bunch of white guys, you know. It's a- right. And so I really wanted to have you know film frames uh, showing some examples of of these techniques we're talking about. Yeah, we got and we got several of those, and they and they reprinted really nicely in the manual, at least how they came out. That's like, a like those great examples you picked from Star Trek. Uh, Super 35 versus Scope on Star Trek, and I picked some frames on uh, Silverado versus Accidental Tourist. You know, and Silverado Accidental Tourist was fun because same cinematographer, same director, different uh, same aspect ratio, but different way to capture them. How one went for most depth of field, one for went for the shallowest depth of field. It's uh, uh, the use of the, and it's great to actually use those frames in the Blu-rays. And I would upraise them in Photoshop, and they would upraise pretty well, so they were a good 300 DPI imagery and they, they look fabulous in the book yeah the star trek example was here you have uh spock on the bridge of the enterprise the same more or less image from two different movies a one shot super 35 and one shot anamorphic so you you're now you're seeing you know the same set the same actor but on two different lens formats so it's a it's a quick way to see the textural feeling the difference i might steal that example for a lecture in the in the future because that's great yeah i mean anamorphic spock is in focus and the background's totally bulk and out of focus and Super 35, it's not in focus, but it's much more in focus in the Super 35 version, just how, how the depth of field they're able to achieve. Because you're used to shooting a shorter, you know, a focal length that's 50% shorter than the, uh, than the anamorphic focal length. For the same field of view. For the same angle yeah. of view, yeah. yeah. I, did, I guess I have to speak for everybody and say thank you to you oh. two. Uh, because this is, I mean, it, it's, a, it's such an important document in this industry and in in the world of this cinematography that we work in, it is a revered document and it's, you're, you're helping to the next generation and everybody working now to make sure that the information is right and it's available. And oh, you're welcome. I, I answer a lot of questions online often in forums and whatnot. So often when I'm writing like a textbook, I tend to think of, you know, a lot of it from what a film student is most eager to know what are the most common questions I get? Even though this book is more advanced than, than a beginner's manual, I did try to approach the chapters, the new chapters, from just simply ask, answering what common questions you often get from people, like what is resolution, what is, how should I test the camera, just to, and then explain it in a clear way that, that, makes, uh, that flows and makes sense for, for the reader. So that was always in the back of my mind. Where you get questions like, is there a VistaVision camera where the film goes vertically through the movement? Yes, it's called every other camera. <laughs> but eight perfs? Come on. Well, there's Cinerama. It had a six perf movement. <laughs> Uh-oh. Now, now we're going to start nerding out here. <laughs> right. Well, we started that before we started rolling with some great nerding on, on Technicolor. Um, and I'm sure that that could be an entirely different podcast to, to talk about for another time. But I do want to uh, wrap up and, and say thank you to you both for, for being here. Uh, we were here uh, live at the ASC Clubhouse for the open house and for the release of this manual. You guys got a chance to sign a whole bunch of these for people. It was a huge line uh, to buy the manual, so that's fantastic. Any of you listening can get the manual at uh, here at the website at the ASC store. And again, uh, to you both, gentlemen, thank you for being here. It's been an honor to uh, to talk with you. You're welcome. Thank you, Jay. And uh, thanks for the time. Thanks for listening to the American Cinematographer Podcast. I'm Jay Holbin. And we'll catch you another time.
That was M. David Mullen, ASC, and associate members Rob Hummel and Jay Holbin talking about the writing and editing of the American Cinematographer Manual's 11th edition. A complete transcript is available in the show notes at theasc.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the American Cinematographer Podcast. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes and share it with your friends. For our latest content and exclusive behind-the-scenes photos and videos, follow American Cinematographer on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Vimeo. And you can visit theasc.com for more on the art and craft of cinematography, including articles on the latest productions, video discussions with leading cinematographers, our complete library of podcast interviews, archival articles, notes on new products and services, and just about anything related to the art and craft of filmmaking. TheASC.com. This episode was mixed by Robert Granis and recorded in part at Brickshop Audio in Brooklyn, New York. Thank you for listening, and that's a wrap. <laughs>